Join me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for all who are gathered here. Father, I just pray that as we open up your word, we see your truth in it. Father, I just thank you for the many months of work Pastor Tim has done in Genesis. Father, thank you for the book of Genesis and the foundation it lays for our understanding of you and your word. As we open up the text this morning, Father, I just pray that we come with open hearts and open minds and we can see your truth in it and that that truth can change our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week was the annual CBC barn dance, and for my family and me, the barn dance uh, acts as an anniversary. Two years ago at the barn dance, Becky and I came up to visit CBC for the very first time. Sometimes it's hard to believe it's only been two years, and other times, when I'm working with Tim, it feels like ten years. <laughs> <laughs> but our first trip went really smoothly. However, the second time we came up to interview here at CBC, uh, we had a pretty rocky start. So we had left our home in Nebraska to drive the 10 hours to Stratford. And as most of you have been on long car trips, you're familiar with the fact that after about hour two, your mind switches to autopilot. And it becomes easy to focus on things other than the road. As Becky and I were driving through Iowa, we were talking about CBC and the possibility of me working there. Needless to say, I became much more focused on our, on our conversation than I was on the road. Just as we were coming up on Lamar's, Iowa, I looked up and I saw a large buck crossing the highway. I slammed on the brakes, but it was too late and the deer ended up bouncing off the side of our minivan. In the minutes after we hit the deer, we weren't quite sure what was happening or what to do. We didn't know how damaged the car was or even if we'd be able to make it on to our interview here at CBC. However, as we pulled to the side of the road and looked at the damage, thankfully we saw that the van was still in pretty good shape, and we were able to make it here to CBC. Thankfully, I'd seen the deer in time to prevent the accident from being worse, and we were able to come and interview, and as you can clearly see this morning, that interview went well, and I'm now a pastor here at CBC. You know, sometimes I think reading the Bible is a lot like driving, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, We've read the stories in the Bible many times and we're familiar with them. And when we read and reread those stories, our mind can go into autopilot. However, sometimes I think a question comes along, like a buck in the road, that maybe changes our perspective, that makes us see a point we've never considered before. Today we're going to be talking about the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. As we read Genesis 4, I notice that most of us tend to focus on one question, however. And that question is about Cain's sacrifice. Why is God so mad with Cain? What did Cain do to make God so angry with him? That's a great question. But I think there's another question that we need to ask first. Why is the story of Cain and Abel even here? Why are Cain and Abel so critical to the beginning of Genesis that their story falls between Adam and Noah, two of the most important and most studied passages in all of Scripture. What is the purpose and message of the story of Cain and Abel? Part of faithfully reading the Bible is understanding the big picture. The Bible is not just a collection of loosely related stories with good morals. The Bible tells us one story. It tells us a true and historical story. A story about God 
and his promises. Every passage of the Bible contributes to this story, and it points us to its climax. Every part of the Bible points us to Christ and points us to his fulfillment of those promises. As we study Genesis, we're laying a foundation to this story, and we must see how each chapter of Genesis moves us along in the story and points us to Christ. Over the last year, Tim has been going through Genesis verse by verse, and we've stopped and looked at every detail. But today, I want to take a big picture look at Genesis chapters 4 and 5. My goal is to take a look and to see how Genesis 4 and 5 fit into the story of Genesis, to see how the story of Cain and Abel points us to the promises of God and points us to Christ. The book of Genesis is incredibly important for every Christian to understand. The book of Genesis lays the foundation for our understanding of the rest of the Bible. The first verses of Genesis introduce us to God and go on to detail how he is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of everyone and everything. Genesis also, however, tells us about the fall of mankind. It tells us how Adam broke the commands of God and the consequences of his sin spread throughout creation. But critically, Genesis also introduces us to the promises of God. Genesis tells us that God is the God of promises. We see his promises even in the consequences of Adam's actions. As God curses the serpent, he gives us a glimpse into his promise to redeem mankind from their sin. The story of Cain and Abel begins in this promise. The story of Cain and Abel begins in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 has a special name. Theologians refer to it as the Proto-Evangelium. Say that one three times fast. But it simply means the first gospel, the first promise of God. Pastor Tim covered this passage a few weeks ago. But I want to return there again this morning to see how it connects to the story of Cain and Abel. So if you would, please turn to Genesis 3.15 this morning. Genesis 3.15 tells us, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we look at Genesis 3.15, we can see two promises here in this verse. First, God promises enmity or rivalry between the serpent and the woman and between their offspring. Second, God promises that the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will also bruise or strike the seed of the woman's heel. The word offspring here in Genesis 3.15 is unique. Some translations use the word seed, and in the original language, the, the word means offspring or descendants. A unique characteristic of the Hebrew word for seed is that's an irregular plural noun. We have some of these nouns in English, like the word fish or deer. An irregular plural noun is simply a noun that you don't have to change to make it plural. So when we say fish, we don't say fishes. The same is true about the Hebrew word for seed. The same word can refer to one descendant, or it can refer to a group of descendants, many descendants. This is important to understand in Genesis 3.15, because this promise is both about one single descendant, Christ, but the promise of Genesis 3.15 is also about a group of people, about many descendants. On one hand, 
The promise of Genesis 3.15 points us to Christ. Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy about Christ, who's a descendant of Adam, who crushes the serpent, who crushes the devil. However, this promise also foreshadows conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. These promises lay out two different seeds, two different lines of descendants, one from Eve and another from the serpent. Adam and Eve will have physical children, but the two seeds are not referring to those who are descended physically from Eve or from the serpent. Instead, these two seeds, these two lines of descendants, refer to children, not by blood, but by allegiance. It refers to two groups of people. One group, the seed of the woman, children of God, those who by faith follow God. And another group, the seed of the serpent, children of the devil, those who reject God and reject his promises. Genesis 3.15 is a promise fulfilled in Christ, but it's also a prophecy that plays out throughout the Bible between the children of God and the children of the devil. While these promises ultimately point us to Christ, they also set up the rest of the story of the Old Testament. This war between the two seeds, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, is played out through the whole of Scripture. And it's in light of Genesis 3.15 that we must read Genesis 4. The promise, the promise of the two seeds, this is called a type in theology. A type is a kind of person or event that is repeated throughout the story of the Bible and ultimately points us to a true person or a true event. The study of these types is called typology. Typology is a branch of theology. I enjoy studying theology, and I believe that everyone should have an appreciation of theology. The reason is each one of us is a theologian. Theology simply means the study of God, and we study God to understand God, and everyone has an understanding of God, even atheists. Atheists simply believe there is no God, but that's still a theology. The reality is we're either good theologians or we're bad theologians. We either study the Bible to understand God and his promises, to understand what's true and right, or we let the world shape our view of the Bible. We let the world shape our theology. One of the goals of theology is to examine this big picture, to examine the big picture of the story of the Bible, so that we can see the themes and patterns, so that we can see the types, like the two seeds. Theology helps us ask the right questions, and it helps us see this bigger story in the Bible. As we turn to Genesis 4, we see that this promise of two seeds is a promise of children. And this is the promise that gives hope to Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel begins with this hope. It begins with Eve looking for this promised descendant. Genesis 4.1 tells us, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help from the Lord. The birth of Cain was a sign of hope, and it was also a sign of God's mercy and grace. And Eve acknowledges this hope and grace. And with the birth of her son, she is looking for this promise. Many of you are familiar with the rest of the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both are the sons of Adam and Eve, and Genesis 4 tells us that they each have a profession. 
that Cain worked with the ground to produce fruit and vegetables, and that, Adam, or, and that Abel took care of livestock. Now one day, Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. And if you turn to Genesis 4.3, we can see where the story begins. Genesis 4.3 tells us, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. This passage tells us that Cain became very angry with God when he did not look favorably on his sacrifice. And it's at this point that I think most of us pause and ask why. Why is God so angry with Cain? Again, I think this is a great question, and it's a question that I want to look at next week. But too often, I think that holds us up, and we don't go on to see the purpose of the rest of the story. The story goes on, and it war- God warns Cain to control his sin. Verse 6 and 7 tell us, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But sadly, we know what happens next. Cain murders his brother Abel. Verse 8 tells us, Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. As we read this story, I think we're meant to see the parallels between Cain and between Adam. We see clear parallels to the way that God confronts both Cain and Adam after their sin. In Genesis 4, 9, and 10, the Lord says to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he also asks, "Um, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. God confronts Cain with questions. He asks, where is your brother and what have you done? And these questions are very similar to the way that God confronts Adam after his fall. If you turn back to Genesis 3.9, we see that God calls out to Adam and asks, where are you? And then in verse 11, he asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Similarly, When God curses Cain, we see parallels to the way that God curses the serpent and speaks to Adam. Genesis 4.11-12 tells us, And now you are cursed from the ground, as he talks to Cain. And he says, Which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of earth. God curses Cain here just like he curses the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And Cain's punishment mirrors the punishment of Adam. God punished Adam saying, Cursed is the ground because of you. And again, we see God punishing Cain in a similar way saying, When you work of the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Also remember at the end of Genesis 3, God drove Adam and Eve from the garden. And now here we see that God is driving Cain from the camp of his family. These parallels connect Genesis 4 
and the story of Cain and Abel to Genesis 3, and to the promise of Genesis 3.15. As we read Genesis 4, we're supposed to think of Genesis 3 and see the connections, not only to see the similarity between Cain and Adam, but also to see the way that this story connects us to the promise of Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God prophesied conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He prophesies that the two will be at war. And this is the purpose and message of the story of Cain and Abel, to show us the prophecy being lived out, to show us that the promises of God are true. We don't have to wait long after Genesis 3 to see this conflict in the Old Testament. The very next chapter of the Bible shows us this war between the two seeds. Genesis 4 begins to unfold this prophecy as Cain kills Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent, murdering Abel, the seed of the woman. The, score, the story of Cain and Abel not only shows us the prophecy of conflict between the two seeds, it shows us what this conflict will look like. If you remember, there are two parts to this promise. First, conflict between the seeds, but also it shows us what that conflict will look like. The story of Cain and Abel paints a picture of this conflict that will foreshadow the rest of the story of the Bible. God tells us that the seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And we see this here in Genesis 4 as Cain murders his brother Abel. The seed of the serpent striking the seed of the woman. This is an image that we should remember because throughout the Bible this is what the conflict looks like. It looks like the seed of the serpent seemingly winning over the seed of the woman. We see the story of the two seeds continue even in the genealogies of Cain and Seth, Adam and Eve's next son. If you turn to Genesis 4, 16-22, we see the genealogy of Cain. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujalah, and Mahujalah fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the other name was Zilhah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. In this genealogy, we see the descendants, of Seth, or the descendants of Cain making great progress in society and in culture and in technology. His descendants are marked by the cities they built and the technology and culture that they developed. But the descendants of Seth are not marked by their achievements. They're marked by years. Careful records, recording the descendants of Seth, continuing, counting every year, looking for the promised seed of the woman. If you turn to Genesis 5, chapter 1, we can read the uh, genealogy of Seth. Genesis 5, 1 begins, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named the man when they were created. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. As we compare the two genealogies, we see some similarities. We see that both of the genealogies contain people with similar names, like the two Enochs and the two Lamechs. But the descendants of Cain are marked by their pride and wickedness. The seventh in the line of Cain is a man named Lamech, and Lamech repeats Cain's wickedness and murders another man. If you turn back to Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24, we read that Lamech says to his wives, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech even boasts that his revenge is seventy-seven times more than Cain's revenge. But compare this Lamech to the descendants of Seth. Seth also has a descendant named Lamech. As we read on in Genesis 5, in verse 25, we read that Methuselah had lived 187 years, and he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. This Lamech is not remembered for his actions. He's remembered for his hope. As Lamech, the descendant of Seth, has a son, he names him Noah, and he looks at him with the hope of the promise of Genesis 3.15. Lamech is looking for the promised seed of the woman who will, as he says, bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Cain's Lamech only brought wickedness and death, but Seth's Lamech brings hope and life. Even in these two genealogies, we see the promise of Genesis 3.15 played out. We see the descendants of Cain following in his steps, following their father, the serpent. And we see the descendants of Seth looking for the promise, following their father, God. The conflict between Cain and Abel foreshadows the conflict of the rest of the Old Testament. We see the war of the two seeds being played out between Ishmael and Isaac, between Jacob and Esau, between Pharaoh and Moses, Saul and David, and many, many more. This type, the promise of the two seeds, is like a song in a movie. One of my favorite works of fiction is The Lord of the Rings, and when I was about 13, I read all of the books and I watched the movies with my family. I love the story of The Lord of the Rings, but I also love the music. In most movies, characters have their own theme songs, and throughout The Lord of the Rings movies, we hear the Hobbit's theme song playing in the background. Even as Sam and Frodo travel to Mount Doom, we hear the Hobbit's theme as they travel through Mordor. 
For those of you who prefer works of fiction not inspired by God, think of Darth Vader in his theme song. When you hear Darth Vader's theme song, you know what's going to happen next. These types, like the two seeds, act in a similar way to these songs. When we see situations that remind us of Cain and Abel, we're supposed to think back to the promises of Genesis 3.15. As we pay attention to scripture, we see the song of Genesis 3.15 playing in the background. As we talk about these two seeds, you may ask, why should we read the Bible this way? Is this idea of the two seeds really in scripture? While we can see similarities between this and other Old Testament stories, we can also see the New Testament authors thinking this way. One of the best examples is in the book of the First John. If you would turn with me to First John chapter 3, we see that John talks about the love of God in the believer's life, and as he does so, he references this idea of the two seeds. We'll be in First John chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. First John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? As we see in this passage, John is clearly stating that those who practice love because of their faith in Christ are God's seed. As John says, they are children of God, and God's seed abides in them. And those who practice wickedness are children of the devil. We see the two seeds here. We see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Even more, he compares those who practice wickedness to Cain. He warns us that those who hate their brothers are not children of God, but are like Cain, who was of the evil one, a seed of the serpent. Another reason why we should see the two seeds in the Bible is because Jesus sees them. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read about an interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you would turn with me to Matthew 23, we see Jesus reference this idea of the two seeds. We will be in Matthew chapter 3, verse 29. And Jesus says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I, sentence you, I sent you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some who you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barak, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus calls the Pharisees serpents to invoke this two seeds imagery. It's not an accident that Jesus calls them serpents. His intention is to link them to the seed of the serpent and ultimately to Satan himself. We see this as Jesus holds the Pharisees and their fathers accountable for the blood of the righteous, including Abel. Jesus is accusing them of being seeds of the serpent, just like Cain. He's accusing them of being sons of the devil, just like Cain. It's important to understand the story of the two seeds and to see how it spans the whole of the Bible. It helps us understand how each story in the Bible fits into the bigger picture. And it also shows us how every part of Scripture points to Christ. Next week, we will look at how the promise of the two seeds point to Christ. And I also plan on looking at the question of Cain's disobedience. But today, I hope you see the promise of Genesis 3.15. I hope you see this type of the two seeds in the story of Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel bears witness to the promises of God. God prophesied that there would be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the children of God and the children of the devil. Cain's murder begins the fulfillment of this prophecy. Remember the promise of Genesis 3.15 is not just a promise of Christ, it's a prophecy of conflict. The story of Cain and Abel shows us what this conflict will look like. God does not promise us an easy life either. Instead, the story of Cain and Abel shows us that there will always be conflict for the children of God. But conflict should not shake our trust in God. It should give us hope because God's promises are true. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this war play out. We see Cain and Abel foreshadow the conflict between Esau and Jacob, between Pharaoh and Moses, between the two seeds. We see this even played out in the genealogies. We see the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman fighting throughout all of the Old Testament. And ultimately, we see this war between Christ and between death itself. The purpose and message of the story of Cain and Abel is to show us that God's words are true and that he keeps his promises. As Christians, we are people of God's promises. And this is why I believe we should read the story of Cain and Abel and look for the promises. Too often, we spend our time focused on trying to discover what command Cain may have broken. But in doing so, we miss the promise. The Gospel tells us that no one can perfectly obey the commands of God. Not only did Cain break God's commands, but Adam broke God's commands. And Abel broke God's commands. Each one of us breaks the commands of God. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, all our sinners all break God's commands. And when we focus on the commands, all we see are the consequences. Because other than Jesus Christ, no one perfectly obeys God. 
And this is why we must see the promises throughout the Scripture. The promises of God bring life. As Christians, we are people who live by God's promises. And this is why the promise of God is so critical to see in Genesis 4 in the story of Cain and Abel. It's because the promises of God bring life. Please join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time in your word this morning. Father, I thank you as we examine the, the story of Cain and Abel that we see your promises here. Father, I just pray that as Christians, we're people who look to your promises because we know it's not by our own actions that we can be right before you. It's only by faith in your Son. It's only by faith in the promises. Father, I just pray that as we leave this morning, this truth just wedges itself into our heart, that we seek you and seek your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.